Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. The interactive, where the topics are discussed, will be primarily driven by trainees for trainees. My name is Jessica Luke, and I am a resident editor of CTSNet and cardiovascular surgery resident at the University of British Columbia from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I am delighted to be co-moderating this CTSNet resident corner event with Dr. Leanne Harling, resident editor of CTSNet from the Imperial College in London from the United Kingdom. This live event will discuss the global experience of how to make the most of one's training and successfully transition to practice. This discussion will span cardiac surgery and general thoracic surgery. In addition, this resident corner will also cover specific tips and lessons learned in the realm of resident education during the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks for the introduction, Jessica. Um, we're all delighted to be joined today by our esteemed panel of, of um, uh, panelists. and. Uh, Perhaps we could start by introducing them one by one. Alex, uh, if you want to start. Afternoon or morning, depending on where you are. Uh, my name's Alex Smith. So I am a fourth year cardiothoracic registrar based in London in the UK. Um, so I'm four years into an eight year program currently based at Guy's Hospital doing thoracic surgery. Um, Good morning, everyone. So, so my name's Trevor. I'm actually from Melbourne originally, but I'm currently based in Wellington, New Zealand. So I'm year four of a six-year training program uh, through the Australasian College of Surgeons. Alessia? Um, hello, my name is Alicia Cientara. I'm um, a senior clinical fellow at the Royal Brompton uh, and Harefield Hospital in London. Um, I studied medicine in Hanover and then spent eight years in Switzerland con or starting my cardio, um, uh, cardiac um, surgery training. Since 2018, I'm in the UK and continuing as a senior clinical fellow. Uh, fortunately, just passed the European board exam. So um, I'm quite um, at the end of my training. Claudin? Hello, I am Claudin Lewis. I'm from the University of Rochester Medical Center. That's in Rochester, New York. I am a year five of six in the integrated cardiothoracic surgery program. Happy to be here. Just to make it slightly confusing for everyone, we have a second Alex. <laughs> Hi, my name is Alex Brescia. I'm at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in the US. And I'm also in an integrated training program and ours has two years of research in the middle, so I'm in year six of eight or year four of six clinically. So just before we begin, um, if everyone could submit your questions and comments, um, anything you'd like to address during the discussion to the chat box. Um, in addition, you can live tweet um, what you've learned using the hashtag, hashtag CTSNet live exclamation mark. 
Thank you so much, Leanne and everyone. To get us started, recognizing that we have international representation here, can you all tell us about whereabouts you are all at in your training and briefly what cardiothoracic surgery training paradigm you are in and what paradigms are available in your country? Alex, do you wanna start? Perfect. So as I said previously, so I'm four years into an eight-year training program in cardiothoracics. In the UK, we start off two years postgraduate with foundation training. Gives you a bit of an overview of, of medicine, surgery and some community practice as well before we decide to subspecialize. Um, at that point, there's uh, a couple of different options into cardiothoracics. There is an entry program immediately into the, into the eight-year program, or you can choose to do two years of general surgical training before entering, um, which was the way that I did it. Uh, just gave me a little bit more experience to come a little bit of time to decide what to do. Um, I'm now doing thoracic surgery at Guy's and in the, over the next five years, I will spend the rest of my time in thoracics, so I need to do thoracics, when you spend one year out of specialty. So I did the year of cardiac surgery last year. Trevor? Uh, it's a little bit different down south in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, so basically the, the training program here is run through the College of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. Uh, there's about sort of 40 trainees across Australia and New Zealand, uh, and most people enter the training scheme uh, PGY four to six. Uh, so I'm PGY eight, uh, and it's a six year training program. Um, and there's, while there's specific sort of dedicated thoracic surgery or cardiac surgery or pediatric surgery posts, um, it's sort of both cardiac, it's all inclusive of cardiothoracic surgery. Um, and the, the final exit exam um, examines all, all attributes of that. Okay. Um, well, uh, it's very interesting because it shows that cardiac surgery has many different faces. So I'm not really a part of any kind of program because there is no official training program, uh, neither in Germany nor in Switzerland. So um, there are some, some uh, um, things we have to achieve. So we need to have practice for a certain time in cardiac surgery. We also need a special number of operations. And then very specifically for Switzerland, uh, we need to um, get the European board exam, which is now divided in two parts, which is the um, membership of the European board, which is a written exam. And then two years later, um, we can do um, the fellow of European board. So um, our system is, um, is based actually on achieving your aims by yourself. So uh, you have to be quite awake. There is not such a structured pathway like in the UK uh, that I know, uh, that I got to know uh, quite well in the last two years. So uh, you can probably see a little bit from my traveling experience that um, in the end, um, uh, I had to do a lot of choices by myself. Um, I'm doing cardiac surgery since almost 10 years. And uh, fortunately, uh, will hopefully succeed very soon to get the Swiss uh, uh, Swiss um, uh, certification for cardiac surgery. That's phenomenal. Yes, I'm next. Um, again, I'm Claude and Lewis um, at the University of Rochester Medical Center. I am in an integrated cardiothoracic surgery program, and that serves about one out of the four methods in which you can train in cardiac surgery and thoracic surgery in the United States. Um, the specialty is paired together. So whatever training program you do, 
you essentially acquire both cardiac thoracic specialization with our only true fellowship post-CT surgery being congenital heart surgery. Everything else is a super special, a super fellowship. Having said that, the other routes that exist are to do general surgery, which is typically uh, one to five years, perhaps um, optional research time that may be mandatory based on the institution. Could be anywhere from one to two additional years. The other route that exists is the four, three, kind of like an early specialization. So you do general surgery and then you can kind of opt out from your fifth year from doing general surgery again, you actually start early in the CT surgery track. And therefore it would be three years of you doing CT surgery. And the first four years was general surgery and you are able to be boarded in both. Uh, another route that actually people don't um, know about, it's not too commonly mentioned, um, is to do a integrated vascular surgery route first, which is five years of integrated training for vascular surgery. And then you are actually able to use that as credentialing to get into a CT surgery fellowship, which would be still an additional two to three years. So there's four different routes. And when I applied, the integrated cardiothoracic surgery program had about 22 programs, each program taking about one person per institution, a few programs to two. Um, close to four or five programs at the time for a total of 27 positions. Um, now I know that there's at least uh, between 30 and 40 programs and they still take one. Uh, a lot of programs take two. Um, I know Alex very well, so he'll probably reiterate some of the things that I mentioned. Yeah, thanks, Claude. I think Claude covered most of it. Um, one, one thing about the research, there's it depends on the institution, but a lot of institutions require uh, research or academic time, and that can be that can be basic research, could be clinical health services research, or it could be a master's or something totally different. And so there are some institutions that require that, some that encourage it, and some that don't, and some that uh, don't let trainees do that. And so it's sort of all across the board, and that can be for integrated programs and also general surgery programs. But um, yeah, as, as Claude mentioned, so it's sort of plus two for, for um, any of those. I'm also in an integrated program like Claude and uh, mine was optional for research at the time I entered. And I, I definitely wanted to do that. And then currently we strongly encourage our um, applicants to pursue those two years of research. Thank you, everyone. And I can speak on the Canadian aspect of um, training for cardiac surgery and general, sur general thoracic surgery. So general thoracic surgery, there's only um, one pathway is through a five-year general surgery training and then applying for a fellowship in general thoracic surgery, which is approximately two years in duration. And then they would sit for the Canadian uh, thoracic surgery rural college exam. In terms of cardiac surgery, it is uh, the only option is an integrated six-year residency uh, in adult cardiac surgery, which will also incorporate congenital cardiac surgery. But to do congenital cardiac surgery, it would be a dedicated fellowship after the six-year residency training. And at the end of the six years, you would also sit for the Royal College of um, Surgeons for a cardiac surgery exam. And then uh, all your other niche areas are super fellowships. 
I think one of the things um, that may or may not be specific to, to the UK on that, again, is um, we, it's a very uh, specialty specific, the, the very subspecialty specific things, again, we don't tend to do during our uh, general training. So it's very much a general cardiothoracic training, the requirements, which we'll probably come on to in due course, are very general. Um, there is no predetermined path for those that want to do pediatric, that want to do um, slightly more interventional based tracks or academic tracks. Um, however, that uh, is something that tends to be at the end of training once people have completed their training. Um, it's, it's not formalized in the same way as it is in the US, I think. Good. So moving on, we, we've kind of leading on to the different sort of training uh, programs that are available. We, we've talked, discussed about the differences between um, various countries. Um, I think from a, from a UK perspective, it's difficult because there's not really a choice per se of training programs, but it's more a choice of areas. Um, perhaps we could go through uh, each of our panelists to talk about how you go about choosing um, your training program. Is it area specific? Is it institution specific? Uh, and what things are important to you in deciding which program to go down? Alex, do you want to start? In the, so in the UK, it's very much um, geographical dependent rather than centre dependent. Um, so at the point of entry is a competitive interview based process um, based on some points in your CV and then how well you perform at interview. Um, and a current application ratio is between around about six and ten to one for training programmes. Um, nationally, Health Education England will appoint a certain number. So this year there's eight programmes spread throughout the country. And then based on how you do um, overall and how you, how you score um, will be how likely you are to get different programmes. Um, I ended up in London, which for me was based on where I'm based and where I've lived and where I've trained for the rest of my career, but also got a large number of centres here. So we've got nine or 10 different hospitals with lots of um, interesting things going on. And um, so for me, it was a you know, relatively easy choice. Uh, we're a little bit uh, different down here once again. So as, as I mentioned, it's a competitive entry as well. And most people enter the program at PGY sort of four to six after medical school. So you complete a, um, most people complete an intern year and some surgical resident or house surgeon years and then unaccredited years or non-training registrar years in Australia or New Zealand. Uh, and then entries based on uh, your CV uh, needing about eight referees um, and then also uh, an interview process and they probably take between on average probably three to five a year and they're probably about 50 to 60 applicants um, and basically allocations um, there's about 38 training centers across Australia and New Zealand and it's on a, on a preference base uh, and you as the trainee the onus is on you to talk to each center um, and then decide whether or not you're, you know, uh, they'll, they'll want to list you there. Uh, the only proviso being the more junior you are, the more likely they're to send you at the spots that are left over. Um, but having said that, you've got to make the most of every opportunity. Um, and I've been in New Zealand now for four years and I'll be heading back to Melbourne in January. So, um, and once again, there's no sort of specific stream or paradigm 
here in Australia and New Zealand, it's general cardiothoracic surgery training, except um, some hospitals uh, is just a pure thoracic surgery post, which is only allowed for one year. Uh, pediatric cardiac surgery is one year. Uh, and there's cardiac surgery only units, which you can do for, for two years. Um, but the expectation is, is that you, you get a broad sort of experience based in across cardiothoracic surgery. Okay, so uh, I think again, uh, quite different. So there is no such thing like an entrance exam to get a post in a cardiac uh, cardiac surgery unit in Germany or in Switzerland. So mainly the doctors apply for a job as an assistant doctor. And then if they um, somehow do their job good on the ward and um, if they are somehow engaged with research and um, if they show up in theaters, it's pretty much the decision of the of the team in this specific uh, hospital, uh, what will be the pathway for this trainee. But of course, it is somehow known where people are trained and where there is no progress for training or education. So um, I would say um, I, I can dis or we can distinguish um, two different or maybe three different types of centers in Germany and Switzerland. So the big centers like the universities with a very high load of operations um, can be quite busy, which means you might need a little bit more time to get your specialty. But eventually um, you might get a very good specialization, probably even a sub-specialization um, accompanied by an academic title. Um, then the smaller hospitals or smaller university hospitals are very interesting for training because you might get um, quicker all your normal standard AVR and cabbage cases, which can be very interesting. Um, but unfortunately, um, these hospitals very often do not have such a great access to research. So um, it can be also um, a problem if you try to change um, during your first educational years, which means that if you change the hospital in the other hospital, you might get start or you might start again on the ward trying somehow to get into theaters. So in my opinion, um, it's very important to make a first wise decision where you want to start. If I can speak about the posts in Germany and Switzerland to um, continue in one hospital and then um, if possible, go for fellowships, which I think is very, very useful, um, especially to somehow get another kind of training system. Because in, in Germany and in Switzerland, the consultant training system that you have one consultant you are working for is not established at all. You are always working with the team and you can be in theaters every day with another surgeon. So then it depends if the training or the um, department is standardized, which means that every surgeon is more or less using the same techniques, same minimal invasive exacts, um, same kind of um, cabbage uh, uh, anastomosis stitching. So um, it very much depends on the department, but mainly in Germany and in Switzerland, you are not allocated with one surgeon, you learn from everybody. Well, I guess the recurring theme is uh this specialty is competitive and uh, nationally variable. Um, here in the United States, <clears throat> in regards to training, I guess I'll speak on uh, I-6 versus general surgery. Um, the integrated cardiothoracic surgery method, methods of getting in, um, they're essentially all academic programs. So there's going to be a level of research that's being done at all the programs. Again, there's about uh, 30 plus um, programs that are in the integrated um, cardiac 
and thoracic surgery specialties. Um, so there's going to be a level of research that's being done. Some of the institutions make it um, mandatory for research time, one to two additional years. Um, some of the programs, it's optional. At our program, um, doing research time is optional. We've so far had three out of uh, eight I-6 residents choose to do one additional year and anything of their choosing. Um, so that's been um, interesting. Then you have to plug in and fill the gaps because now you don't have that person to cover call. You know, they're not gonna be rotating on the cardiac surgery service and we keep them completely off um, clinical responsibilities so that they can kind of focus and hone in on their research. For the general surgery programs, which I think is still the predominant method in which we are training cardiothoracic surgeons, um, they go through general surgery. Now, this is where the decision-making is necessary. If, if you know for a fact you're interested in cardiac, you know, I would say, hey, consider the integrated cardiothoracic surgery programs. However, it's very competitive. There are not many seats in the nation. The general surgery route, at least the direction many programs have gone, they don't really sit for um, cardiac examinations. Um, they're in training exams, don't necessarily cover cardiac content. And many programs are, are not necessarily rotating on cardiac surgery services. As we know, cardiothoracic surgery is a complex specialty in the United States. You have the two heads, thoracic and cardiac, with thoracic being a true general surgery subspecialty and cardiac not necessarily so. Um, so a lot of the residents, you know, have said, oh, there's some difficulty when they rotate on cardiac um, because they're not getting that, you know, um, it's not something that they're being tested for and it's not a required rotation anymore. So you start to pursue the things that you see often. So a lot of people who leave general surgery, if they do CT surgery, they perhaps are looking at thoracic surgery um, or they may have been interested, but now they've seen so many uh, surgical oncology, critical care, acute care surgery, other specialties um, that perhaps is hard to hone in on those same individuals five to seven years later uh, to continue pursuing um, CT surgery. So, so, so perhaps um, we lose out on some of the applicants who see for the next seven years um, abdominal procedures. That's just the reality of it. Um, but having said that, there are a good amount of people who still um, after general surgery, pursue cardiac surgery um, in particular. And um, that's pretty much the route that I would say. The I-6 gives you an early opportunity to kind of build your CV towards what you're ultimately doing, to build a repertoire of uh, certain procedures you're gonna be doing. And, you know, you get early exposure coming in as a PGY-1, year one resident, you know, doing sternotomies, getting on bypass. Whereas as a fellow, you'll be doing that as a pgy five, six, or seven. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think that Claudine articulated the thought process well of, of what might be attractive for an integrated program, because you may go, you know, five to seven years and, and rotate on cardiac as an elective um, or during research time through the general surgery pathway. That being said, like Claudine also said, it's still the predominant pathway of training in the U.S. is through general surgery. And I think from some of those concerns is why the the four plus three sort of fast track programs uh, or early special early specialization programs is a better word um, have been established. And in those programs, you're you're actually boarded in general surgery and cardiothoracic, <clears throat> just as if you go the traditional pathway of 
finishing all of general surgery and cardiothoracic versus the integrated pathways are only boarded um, in cardiothoracic, which you know is a conscious decision all of us make by going in those programs. I think one of the comments at the beginning about geography in the UK, it's definitely drastically different in the US. It doesn't, uh, I think the most that geography plays into it is personal preference. But aside from that, you're not uh, you know, expected to go to a certain region of the country versus another. The thing that I usually tell applicants is that each program is gonna be different. And so, um, you know, for example, I matched at my top choice, which is an integrated program. And my second choice on my list was one of the general surgery early specialization programs. So it's, it's uh, typically not that people are in one bucket or another, and it's often uh, mixed in terms of their list and the programs they're interviewing at. And so for applicants looking to be trained, they typically almost always um, will interview at at all types of these programs that they're pursuing career. Just one uh, other thing I wanted to, to mention was that when choosing a program, I think one of the important things as someone who's sort of not too long ago come out the other end um, is to think about where you want to be when you finish. And um, certainly in the UK, and I think it's probably more widespread than in the UK, what you where you decide to go in often ends up where you end up spending the rest of your career or at least reasonably close by um and looking at those people who are doing the job that you see yourself doing in 5 10 15 years time and seeing if that is the life that you want and if that is the career that you see yourself doing um, then go for it and if that's not what you want then maybe you should look elsewhere other institutions other programs and other opportunities yeah thank you everyone those are all fantastic points and i would say that in canada it's a similar um, situation in terms of uh, interviewing across the country for all the programs that are available in canada for cardiac surgery um, for general thoracic surgery it would be an application like a traditional job application. So there's no formal matching process. But for cardiac surgery, it's straight out of medical school and you go through what we call a CARMS process, which is a, a match um, making system between the program and the applicant where we each individually rank each other and the highest um, match best match um, possible is then made. Um, I chose my program, um, which was my first choice as well. Um, because of, uh, I felt that it was a good fit for me. Um, it was a good location. They had a good track record of education and academic commitment to uh, trainees, as well as mentorship, sponsorship, uh, personal and professional uh, development and support. There's also, uh, most importantly to me, was a diversity in training across the entire scope of cardiac surgery so that I can be well-trained in all aspects of cardiac surgery, as well as a good interdisciplinary collaboration um, with vascular surgery, our interventional cardiology colleagues and interventional radiology colleagues so that I can get the necessary wire skills um, to learn um, that would be important for our specialty, as well as ultimately being a good place that I can get excellent uh, technical and clinical training to set my career up for success. So that's how I chose um, the program that I'm at. And those were, that was the thought process that I went through when I was going uh, through the match process. 
So yeah, that was a fantastic question, uh, Leanne, and what a fruitful discussion. I'm sure that um, lots of these uh, points discussed uh, will also be applicable to the job seeking aspect as well when we all emerge from the other end of the training uh, system. So uh, moving forward with the worldwide pandemic that is now uh, going on with variable disruptions to cardiothoracic surgery training worldwide, can we discuss how COVID-19 has affected each of our individual training and share lessons learned in the realm of how to make the most of one's training during a pandemic that will be applicable to future uh, subsequent waves and hopefully not, but future pandemics and healthcare crises as well. We'll start off with uh, Alex Smith. So during the peak of the pandemic here in London, I was actually based at Bart's Hospital doing cardiac surgery last year. And March, April, May were pretty bleak for us here. Getting cases done was very, very difficult. We, um, we were the centre providing emergency cardiac surgery for the whole of London. All of the other centres stopped operating altogether. So in some respects, I was quite lucky to be based there. Um, but we went from doing between 10 and 16 cases a day to doing one to two. There's an enormous volume of complex aortic surgeries, aortic dissections coming through the door because we went from covering you know, a population of a couple of million to, again, covering the whole of Greater London. Um, and opportunities for training were extremely limited, um, particularly with complex cases getting in um, still a relatively junior stage. Good to be observing things, but actually getting to do stitching was difficult. Um, so I kind of took the... Um, decision pretty early on to try and concentrate on all the other stuff that we need to be doing. So trying to get my research projects done, concentrating on a, a few other academic products, academic projects, um, keeping up, doing a bit of reading as well, um, and just trying to concentrate on that side. I was doing a little bit of dry lab stuff at home and with some of the other trainees, you know, it's very easy to stitch straws together when there isn't any other options. Um, but thankfully now, since I'd say May, June time, things have settled significantly. And we've got the ICU bed space back and now we're really catching up with uh, all, all the work that's been hanging over us since then. Uh, we're a bit lucky in uh, New Zealand uh, and we locked down for about four weeks in March and for the first week my specialty stopped operating uh, but we were allowed to keep operating with inpatient acutes. And then what happened, uh, as, as you know, we didn't have much COVID here at all and, and um, what happened then was the ICU was empty, so the, the hospital decided to keep bringing in more cardiac surgery patients. Uh, so we actually operated pretty much throughout um, our sort of little COVID crisis, which is nothing in comparison to what you guys are going through. So we were quite fortunate in that sense. Um, some of my colleagues back home in Australia, um, they did have um, some further, particularly in Melbourne, they did have some moments where they were required to cover COVID wards, etc. Um, so they weren't able to to train throughout um, and, and our colleges ruled that you know no trainees should be disadvantaged due to COVID uh, which I think is something that's brought a bit of relief to, to the trainees across Australasia. Okay um, well fortunately my hospital in London was um, open not only for emergencies but also for let's say urgent cases so um, Harefield was kept as one of the hospitals in the west uh, part of London um, for the cardiac cases. Um, my experience was that um, was actually quite positive because what happened was that surgeons from three other hospitals came over to carry on with the cases. So um, while 
unfortunately, a lot of colleagues spend a lot of time on intensive care unit to um, take care of the very sick COVID patients. We were somehow the lucky ones who had the opportunity to work with new surgeons, which was quite interesting because you had uh, at some point the whole expertise under one roof and it was very interesting to watch and to assist. So um, I must say regarding the practical training, and I think this is just a very tiny, tiny view, but um, we were the lucky ones in Harefield that we could um, continue. And then I would like to add a very important thing. So we had to select the patients. Um, we all know that we have the MDTs to discuss complex cases, who is going first, who is going for interventional treatment, who is receiving surgery. And so what happened was that every morning at 10 o'clock, we had a very extensive meeting with all the specialists discussing cases on a very high level because radiologists were zoomed in, um, cardiologists were there, um, cardiologists from peripheral hospitals were there. So we had um, a big platform uh, discussing patients on a very specialized high level. And I must say, I learned, I learned more from these MDTs than ever before from any training. So um, in the end, I think um, we, we also can conclude that there were some positive uh, developments during the COVID pandemic for us. Okay, uh, I, I guess there's been some similarities uh, with the COVID pandemic, um, you know, changing our volumes. Um, during the peak of the pandemic, um, many months ago, we decided to take a step back on doing elective cases elective cases we were defining in uh, CT surgery um, were cases that would cause, um, would cause limited harm if they were to be postponed about three months. And then we were saying elective urgent, kind of the gray area, those are elective cases, you know, patients are at home and perhaps there would possibly be some harm if they were to wait three months. And then we had urgent cases Hospital um, patients who are currently hospitalized with uh, their morbidity um, and they may need an operation sooner than later. And then obviously emergent cases that needs to be done right now, stop what you're doing. So we decided to put a hold on elective cases. But as you can imagine, in the field of cardiothoracic surgery and probably more so cardiac, a lot of the cases um, just still kept coming because they just had to be done. We had a certain volume of inpatients um, that need to be done. And some patients who would have harm should they have been postponed a significant amount of time. So our volume was was down maybe 20 to 30%. And about two to three months later, we realized immediately that although New York, the entire state of New York was suffering with a lot of um, COVID-related concerns, it was more so New York City. I'm in upstate New York, which is on the west side of New York, which is majority of the state, but the most populous area of New York State is New York City, you know, for which there are many hospitals there. A lot of what was happening there in regards to COVID pandemic was not present in our state, in our side of the state at all. It was almost as if we were in two different planets. So while they were, you know, managing the crisis there, we were actually sending people to New York City to help them because our situation was completely reversed. I will say that unfortunately it looks like COVID is uh, rounding the corner in, in the wrong way um, of recent. Um, so much so that yesterday we were told that we're gonna put a hold on elective cases again, back to the definition I spoke to 
um, of previous, just so we don't um, go the wrong direction and try to get a hold of this, uh, this pandemic. Yeah, uh, similar to Clawden, what we did in Michigan, Detroit was one of the uh, harder hit cities in the U.S. in the spring. So sort of around the same time as New York, but to a smaller scale um, as compared to New York. And so in the spring, we got a lot of transfers from the Detroit area. uh, And there were a lot more cases of COVID there. Ann Arbor is about an hour outside of Detroit. And so there are fewer in our direct local area. But similarly, we stopped doing elective cases, which definitely decreased the the case volume a lot. And um, sort of what Clauden was talking about, there was literally a list of elective patients and they were all ranked in in, um, sort of an order of urgency of when they needed to be done. And also, as Claudine said, we're sort of coming around to the second wave now. I think that it is different from the first in terms of our hospital's approach to it. Uh, they're not um, going to, I think, cancel as many cases with as uh, wide sweeping policy changes as they did the first time. And so we'll see how it goes. I think there are some less, there are definitely a, a higher proportion of less acutely ill COVID patients this time. From a training perspective, I was uh, still on the dedicated research time at that time, but a, a number of residents, including myself, got redeployed to different areas of the hospital. And I think one of the opportunities was just from the perspective of kind of being a, a citizen of the hospital, you know, our, um, we were very useful in different areas of the hospital because of critical care skills. And I think that that was uh, somewhat of a source of pride among, among our trainees that we could um, be helpful and be a big benefit in this in this broader effort. From a cardiothoracic training perspective, there was a dip in cases at that time. And I think um, I think there just needs to be a, a broad approach from programs in order to recognize that and mitigate that going forward. Um, you know, case numbers have ramped up since then. And I, I know we'll probably talk about it a little bit, but I think there are some downstream impl- implications, not just in that moment, but um, you know, for people applying for jobs and those who are already committed to going to jobs and, and a number of downstream effects that we may still be seeing. Completely agree with everyone's um, points and uh, in Canada, we were quite lucky for the first uh, wave. Um, we did clamp down quite a lot um, and quite drastically with the cessation of nearly all non-emergent cases uh, for cardiac surgery for several weeks in March to April. And for general thoracic, we actually never stopped. And we uh, continued operating full caseloads um, for all cancer cases, um, as those were deemed as emergent um, and has the potential to uh, spread with time. So those were operations that continued. Um, Now with the second wave, uh, we have many more cases, but uh, so far um, things have not changed. We've actually been ramping up uh, with operations on Saturdays and uh, uh, to curb the patients uh, that were delayed 
and had delayed operations, given that many presented with, um, with um, delayed complications due to delaying care. So we're actually ramping up, but we'll see how things go. Thank you, Jessica. So I think we were gonna try and move on now. I'm slightly conscious of time. There's quite a lot of questions coming in as well. Uh, we're doing our best to answer as many things on the Q&A as we can. And there are a few things that we want to sort of bring up as we move forward. Um, just a little bit about transitioning out of training into independent practice. Um, something that has come up in the uh, question and answer so far is, it is um, a bottleneck at the end of training and finding a job um, once you come out the other end. And I'm sure this is a, a universal problem um, in the sense that if you want to work in a competitive institution, it's a competitive specialty throughout some subspecialties more than others. Uh, I know a number of colleagues in congenital who are still struggling many years down the line to find um, consultant or attending positions. And so really the things that um, you guys find are going to be important or feel are going to be important moving forward in terms of making yourself competitive um, and transitioning from from your uh, trainee years to to your independent practice uh, perhaps Alex do you want to start sorry I just clarify so the question is how to what you think the important points are in order to get a job at the end of training yeah, exactly. Fine. And the things that you think are going to be uh, to enable you to be independent. Yeah, perfect. So it's a little bit different across the two subspecialties in the UK. Within cardiac surgery, there is an enormous bottleneck at the end of training. Um, and, you know, consultant positions at the moment are getting up to 40, 50 applicants per job. Whereas in thoracics, it's a little bit different. And people tend to um, be appointed a little bit more quickly. Um, I'm quite jealous of you guys in the US that you get some research as part of your training because that's certainly not something we get in the UK. If you want to do any research, you want to do any higher degrees, these are all optional extras that you have to invest time in. But looking towards the end of training, it's really important that you, you have invested some time doing something else to make yourself saleable, be that research, be that teaching, be that in management. So you, you must try and plan ahead. Um, personally, I'm more interested in the, the research side of things. So um, my plan is to take a year out of training next year and do a self-funded master's in, in medical stats um, with a view to then take, doing an MD um, part-time on the side of training. So hopefully I'll then come to the end of training with more of a research background, which should give me a little bit of a head start com compared to some other people. So that's, that's my plan. So I just need to make it happen now. I think uh, in Australia, New Zealand, I, I think echoing what Alex said, you know, obviously research, teaching uh, and all those things. But um, being a bit different here, um, we were told at the start of our training, which is six years, that it's sort of a six year long job interview um, and trainees can rotate along um, through, you know, as many as six different centres if you're unlucky enough to be sent to a different place every year um, across Australia and New Zealand. Um, and, and one of the pieces of advice we were given is that they're always, um, you know, some of the older surgeons are always looking for their replacements or, or people who they could possibly, um, you know, hire as, um, as new consultants are. But similar thing to what's happening, I guess, in, in Europe and the States, probably um, not that many consultant positions uh, available. Uh, but just echoing what Alex said, I guess, the research aspect. 
Yeah, so uh, I never had the impression at any time of my training that there is um, that there is the need or that um, people are searching for more cardiac surgeons, to be honest. So um, therefore, uh, no matter if it's Germany, Switzerland or UK, um, there is definitely a bottleneck. And I think what is um, so, somehow important to probably facilitate um, the idea of becoming more independent is not only the fact that you're doing cases, but also that the consultants or the people that are supervising you get the impression that you are definitely able to drive the bus. So um, in any place where I've worked, um, the, the additional work in research, in audits, in how to lead a department, um, how a department is working, um, all these, we can call it soft factors, soft parameters were also very important. So um, in the end, it's, it's the whole role of a cardiac surgeon that you're not only delivering some, somehow a, a very, um, a work that is um, uh, mainly focused uh, on um, producing anastomosis, but it's also the way that you're communicating in your department and what you can give back to the department. Yeah, I think um, it's very important to be able to market um, your abilities to have a niche. Um, in our program in particular, one of the things that we do well is heart failure. So I have found that with that skill set, I can move forward um, being able to provide those cases. So should I be interested in going to, let's say, Florida, for instance, to practice heart surgery? You know, some of the things that will make me marketable is that I'll be able to place a left ventricular assist device, you know, through um, multiple minimum invasive routes that I'll be able to provide, you know, percutaneous mechanical circulatory support that I have a robust, you know, skill set in managing the patients who are in cardiogenic shock and getting them through um, an operation and even revascularization. And although that sometimes those are some things that are taught at a super fellowship program, it just happens to be one of the things that we get a lot of experience with. Um, so that might make me more marketable, should I find a program that is actually looking for someone who can provide that opportunity. But let's say the same is true for, you know, some of you guys is, uh, who are participants um, institution, let's say you guys do advanced aortic very well, you know, that would be um, something that you can explore, you know, you can say, hey, um, you know, doctors in my program, can I spend a little bit even more time, you know, during my main training time so that I can say that I am well adept at managing the aorta so that when I go out, I can say, hey, I've done an additional, you know, in-house fellowship on advanced aortic and I can provide that skill set. Just before I quickly give it up to Alex, um, I saw a question previously on like wire skills, you know, the same is true. Um, finding the opportunity to sit with the attending who's doing those wire cases, um, TVARs, TAVARs, we do that on a weekly basis. So I show up for those and I try my best to work at it until it just makes sense. And what interventional cardiology is learning in one year, because again, they do cardiology in the United States in one year interventional, um, we get to see that every year. So we get to build up on that skill set. We should be able to graduate. Um, with wire skills. I think that that's very necessary. I think those are great points. Um, one thing that came to mind as, as each of you were talking, I think 
I think it's important as with any job that that um, the applicants kind of defining what type of job they want. And so training can often be geared towards that. And at least in the U.S., the majority of jobs are still in the community. They're not at uh, super specialized academic centers. There are a number of trainees who want to have academic careers. And so I think uh, a lot of the research and a lot of the super specialization makes sense um, for those people, but there are still other people who may want a different type of job. And so I think during training, it's important to, to define, establish, and then align your training with those goals. Like Claudine was mentioning, I think one of the advantages of, of the integrated program is there is a little bit more flexibility uh, as compared to maybe a two-year cardiothoracic training fellowship after general surgery, just because you have a little more time. So at least for us, the, the general goal and expectation is that the, the number of cases that we have to have in order to sit for boards, those minimum numbers, we we are all pretty much finished with those in, at the end of our fifth year. So then we have a sixth year where there's really no um, requirements that we have to fulfill still. And so as Claudine was describing, you could you can get increased exposure in whatever it is that either your institutions really specialize and good at or that you want to pursue going forward. And uh, you can align those two things to make yourself more marketable in the job market. In terms of a bottleneck for jobs, I think that there's definitely been an impact from COVID just in a sense that there are hospitals who have frozen their hiring. And so if they're not hiring people, they're gonna be less jobs. That being said, I have, I have no idea how to quantify that. And so I don't know how big of an impact that's been. And I think we're sort of figuring that out. But that aside, and before COVID and potentially after, I think the job market is actually quite good for both cardiac and general thoracic in the US. And uh, the overall sense I've gotten is that there's, again, there's a lot of jobs, but it also depends on what type of job you want and how open you are to different types of jobs. You've just given it away. You're going to have a big onslaught of UK trainees now coming over to try and steal all your jobs. <laughs> um, so one other thing I wanted to say, and just a comment that, that Trevor made, that it is 100% a six-year, eight-year, however many years you're on there for job interview. Don't be unpleasant to anybody. Don't shout at anybody. Don't be mean to the nursing staff. Be nice to everybody you meet all the way through your training. Uh, because you never know the day that you turn around and you want a job, who's going to be there and where you're going to want to be ultimately. So just even if you're having a bad day, try and just suck it up, smile and move on. Uh, and you will optimize your chances of that not biting you later on in training. That's a fantastic point. And I completely agree. And I think um, there were lots of great points that were brought up in this discussion on in summary looking, uh, transitioning to practice, setting yourself up for success, as well as optimizing your training while you are in training. And um, I think we can categorize trainees into two groups, really, those who get by with the bare minimum to meet the minimum uh, case volume requirements, and then uh, they then don't go uh, any further, or there's the other group that go above and beyond. So to set ourselves up for success, 
we need to think about our training as a X number of years of interview. Um, and it is an interview um, in that we need to be affable, available, and able, and be proactive in seeking out these learning opportunities, both um, inside and outside at the operating room, um, and also having this insight and self-awareness of our own limitations, and uh, be proactive in seeking out enrichment opportunities. Um, and then it also cannot be overstated as the importance of mentorship and sponsorship and dedicated educators as it truly takes a community to train a surgeon. Um, with that, we're, and we're coming close to the hour here and in the interest of time, um, I'll turn it over to Leanne to see if there's any uh, further uh, topics um, or questions that we should cover in this hour. But I think we got a lot of fantastic uh, questions. Uh, from the audience and thank you for that all. And we will ensure that we will address those that were not addressed in this webinar in future ones. Thanks, Jessica. I think just maybe one thing that we haven't covered particularly in detail is um, case requirements. Um, I know they change, they vary between uh, countries, um, but that's something that's come up a lot. Uh, so briefly from the UK side, uh, it's 150 major cases, be it either in cardiac or thoracic. The way that our training is structured um, in thoracic surgery, that would be either lung anatomical lung resection, by any means, um, and or pleurectomy um, decortication for mesothelioma or other major cases, so things like uh, pancreas resections, um, uh, complex chest wall, that kind of thing. Um, from a cardiac side, that includes valves, grafts, uh, any combination thereof. Um, but that's pretty much it, uh, Alex. You might anything else that I've missed on that side of things? No, we're good. Um, so that's that's the UK requirement, and that's by completion of training to get your certificate. Um, you have to have done all of that, and you have to go through an annual viva once a year, by which you sit in front of a panel of people that includes lay people, um, members of the society, and consultant trainers who will appraise what you've been doing that year and tell you whether or not you have succeeded enough to been then allowed to proceed to the following year. Um, I don't know if we go through the panel quickly, we can talk about other institutions and what the requirements are. Um, the other thing from an exam perspective, you have to have completed the MRCS exam that's come up a couple of times in the questions uh, before you start your training. So you cannot get a, a residency position unless you're at ST1 or two um, without having done that. Um, and then at the end of training in the last one to two years, you're expected to complete the fellowship exam in cardiothoracic surgery, which is equivalent to sort of the US board exam. Trevor, do you wanna fill us in quickly on the? Yeah, our requirements are a little bit different. Uh, once again, uh, just doing things a bit differently. Um, so we've got different categories of cases. So we've got um, what we call unassisted cases where you do the case with the boss unscrubbed. Uh, and assisted cases where you're doing the case but the boss is standing either scrubbed or, or assisting you. Um, and so basically that sort of differs uh, and they split it up into component procedures for us uh, sort of to try to stagger your training. So in first year to sort of your first to second year, you're, you're expected to be opening and closing, taking memories, putting patients on bypass, doing simple VATS procedures. And then sort of in your third and fourth year, you're expected to sort of progressing to doing distal anastomoses and proximals. Um, so if you have a look on the College of Surgeons website, um, there's, a, there's a list, I guess, of the minimum numbers and there's too many to sort of go through now. Uh, but there is, a, there is a thought pattern that there's not enough minimum requirements. And, and I think the, our board has stressed that it's a minimum number. 
Um, so not just, you know, just because you've met the minimum number doesn't mean you're necessarily independent, ready for independent practice. Um, and along with that, we, we have things uh, called DOPS, which is basically in, uh, if you, uh, in your senior year, you have to do, I think, three or four, say, coronary bypass DOPS, which means uh, you, it's a direct ob observation of procedural skills. Uh, so that means you you speak to your consultant and you say, oh, I'd like this case to be adopts and, and they'll assess you uh, based upon a certain criteria and that's submitted to the board. Um, so yeah, have a look on our college website if you're interested. Um, so in Switzerland, um, it's a clear number of 100 cases on heart-lung machine of which 50 need to be cabbages, at least 25 are aortic valves and then all the combinations. Um, interestingly, two years ago, the Swiss board also introduced TAVIs as procedures that where you have to attend as an assistant. So it's it's like a, let's say, ceremonial number of 20 TAVIs um, where you have to attend. But I think it is definitely a step into the right direction, somehow implementing um, very slowly also the interventional procedures into the curriculum. Uh, without making it too difficult, because of course you cannot expect um, a young trainee to uh, perform 20 tabbies by themselves. Yeah. Uh, speaking for the US, and I just probably reiterate as well, um, there are a lot of categories that we have to acquire. Um, um, our, our numbers in, so to speak, probably more than 20 on cardiac, more than 20 on thoracic and even some minimal requirements from the general surgery experience. Um, just to speak a little bit on cardiac that I can think of um, from memory. Um, if you're a true cardiac track, because you can be cardiac track, you can be thoracic track, you can be dual track. That means you meet both expectations. If you're a true cardiac track, you need at least 80 cabbages under your belt, um, period. Five reduced anatomies I can think of um, really quickly and like more than 60 valves. Um, for a thoracic, for instance, you need like 60 lobectomies, 50, 60 lobectomies, um, um, not to mention some of which are done by VATS, uh, medium stenoscopies, other approaches of which there's like five of those. But on our ACGME, which is the, the board that recognizes those case logs, we can actually log in and get a printout of where we are because we have to log our cases every time we do cases. And then you'll just see all the 20 different categories um, and whether you meet those expectations or not. You need to essentially complete all of those so you can graduate. And there are times where you don't complete all of it and you can petition the board. For instance, some of the tracheal procedures are just not that frequent anymore. And some of the methods in which we do things have changed substantially, you know. So you're not necessarily doing a ton of media stenoscopies if you can do an endobronchial ultrasound for biopsy, for instance. So therefore, the number that you may get for that may be a little bit less. Um, we don't struggle when doing six years, but I can imagine a two-year program, because again, we have so many options in US that they may struggle to get a number of something that doesn't happen, but once or twice a year. So a lot of numbers. Yeah, I would just echo what, what Claude said, I think. It just breaks down to there are a number of different categories uh, and there are minimums for each category. And then if you're on a cardiac versus general thoracic track, those numbers are different. So it's usually about, about half the numbers. So for example, it might be 80 in one category for a cardiac track person would be 30 or 40 for a thoracic track person in that cardiac procedure and vice versa for um, for the thoracic. I think one thing that's like often debated is that 
you know, you're supposed to be the primary surgeon when you're logging those numbers. And so the only ones that count as an assistant, I think are congenital cardiac cases. There's some you need to do as an assistant and some as primary. And then a, a few years ago, they added TAVR uh, numbers, both as primary and as, as an assistant. Otherwise the rest, you're all uh, supposed to be primary surgeon. And, and I think most places treat that as, you know, if you're doing more than 50% of the case, then, then it would be logged as primary. But one thing that's interesting that Trevor said, you know, we don't have one where it's like the, the attending is, is like not scrubbed or in the other room or whatnot, but it's an interesting thing to think about that type of system. Yeah, thanks everyone. And speaking from the Canadian perspective, I'm the last year of the old system, which is time-based. We have no minimum volume requirements, but people complete their training and they are competent and ready to practice at the end of six years. Um, so I'm in the last year of that. And then my junior colleagues are in the new system, which is a competency by design system, um, which is new to Canada. It's based on entrustable professional activities called EPAs where um, trainees are scored and graded on specific tasks that they need to do. For example, sternotomy, taking down a mammary and the entire uh, scope of cardiac surgery. So with that, Thank you so much, everyone. This has been a phenomenal panel. Um, I would truly like to thank our panelists for joining us and sharing their thoughts and insight from across the globe and as well as my co-moderator, uh, Dr. Leanne Harling. And uh, thank you for everyone for submitting your questions. For those questions that we were unable to address in this, Paul will be sure to create a new webinar and subsequent uh, resident corner sessions to address those specifically. And so make sure to check out all the other fantastic resources uh, through the CTSnet uh, portal for resident training and uh, stay safe, stay well, and look forward to seeing you all again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to CTSnet to go your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.